and welcome to The Tax Track, the new podcast series from ICAEW, where we explore the latest from the tax world and what it means for our members and tax professionals alike. In this episode, we'll be looking at the wider implications of an unusual capital allowance case that went to tribunal. This is a good illustration of how you can use tax cases to try and predict how HMRC will react to a claim. We'll also be discussing the change that are being introduced to the cash basis this April. There were various suggestions muted and, quite surprisingly, all of them were adopted. I'm Lindsay Wicks, Senior Technical Manager for Tax Policy at ICAW. I'm joined this month by two colleagues with some stories to share. Stephen Ralph, Technical Manager, Tax and Richard Jones, Senior Technical Manager, Tax Policy. Welcome to you both. Hi, Lindsay. Hi there, Lindsay. Let's get into our first topic for today, which is all about whether a camping pod is planter machinery. Cases about the definition of planter machinery seem to be as common as cases about the zero rating of food. Stephen, do you want to kick us off with a bit more background to this case? Yeah, certainly. So this case concerns a company called Acorn Venture Limited. And that company provides uh, residential adventure holidays for school children in the UK. One of its sites is in Wales. Uh, it purchased the site back in 2008. And at that point, the accommodation was provided in a mixture of porter cabins uh, and tents in a, a kind of tent village. So if we roll forward a couple of years, by about 2015, uh, the porter cabins had come to the end of their useful life. And there had been some concerns expressed about uh, children's safety in the tents. So the company made the decision to spend quite a lot of money, uh, probably around £300,000, on buying 26 new camping pods. Now, those camping pods uh, were fully assembled off-site. They were delivered to the site on the back of a lorry and then were lifted in place by a forklift. Uh, They stood on the hard standing area where the porter cabins had been, resting by their own weight, but they, they were tethered to the ground just to prevent any movement in the wind. The company took the view that the expenditure they incurred on buying those camping pods was expenditure on plant and machinery, and they claimed capital allowances. Uh, and they claimed capital allowances in the form of the annual investment allowance. So as we all know, that gives 100% tax relief uh, in the year in which the expenditure is incurred. So they submitted their corporation tax return for the year ended 30 September 2015 on that basis. There was an inquiry. Uh, HMRC disputed the claim for capital allowances. There followed quite a lengthy period of correspondence between HMRC and the company, I think going on for more than five years. And then ultimately we ended up in front of the first tier tribunal. And what issues did the tribunal consider? So uh, it was common ground, first of all, that the expenditure was capital. So that's good. Also, HMRC didn't challenge it under the the premises test. It was accepted that these were items that were used in the company's trade. But unfortunately, that did leave a few more issues to resolve. So in the capital allowances legislation, there is a provision which denies capital allowances for plant and machinery where the expenditure is on a structure. And there is a fairly limited definition of structure in the Capital Allowances Act, but it basically says uh, that a structure is not a building. And that leads us on to our second issue, because there is then another standalone provision which denies uh, cap allowances for expenditure on plant and machinery, where the expenditure is on a building. But to complicate matters further, if it is a building, there is a saving, there is an exception from that rule, which applies if the building is movable and if there's an intention to move it. So essentially, 
the first tier tribunal had to, to work out were the pods structures, were the pods buildings. If they were buildings, then were they movable? And if they were buildings, and if they were movable, it was an intention to move them. Before we go any further, though, one key point of information, the pods that were intended for the children had quite a basic fit out. So essentially it was just beds in the pod, nothing else. Whereas the pods that were intended for the teachers had only two beds, which left an awful lot of space for additional facilities, uh, for washroom facilities and some limited catering facilities as well. So a significant difference between the two types of pod. And before the tribunal looked at the issues in detail, it was agreed that uh, they could come to a different conclusion for the two different types of pod. So if we take each issue uh, in isolation, we begin with the structures issue. In the definition in the cap allowances legislation, it does refer to the structure having to be fixed. Now, the kids' pods, although they were tethered to the ground to prevent wind damage, the tribunal ruled that they weren't fixed and so they could not be structures. But for the teacher pods with their washroom facilities, then obviously that involved plumbing and drainage, and that meant that they were fixed. So therefore, for that issue, uh, the teacher pods were structures. So we then went on to consider the building point. So in terms of the basic pods, we know they're not fixed. Uh, the tribunal also said that they didn't provide anywhere near enough accommodation uh, to, to merit being classified as a building. Essentially, it ruled that they were pretty much similar to a, a tent. It was kind of a posh tent. But the teacher pods, again, uh, the washroom facilities and the catering facilities proved to be their undoing. So they were fixed to the ground and they did provide uh, what you may consider to be quite a high standard of accommodation. So they were buildings. I don't think they'd be high enough accommodation to encourage me to go camping. Certainly not me either, no. no. <laughs> I don't know what the kids felt about all this as well, if, yeah. if, if, should they happen to read the decision. So essentially, if we take stock at this point, the kids' pods are fine. When claim cap allowances and those, they're not structures, they're not buildings. The teachers' pods are buildings. So now we need to consider, are they movable? And if so, was the intention to move them? Now, the movable question you think would be fairly straightforward, given that they arrived on site fully assembled. But HMRC contested it. Uh, yeah, in theory, they're movable. But for HMRC, for all practical purposes, you weren't going to move these things. Uh, the FTT rejected that quite quickly. The, the costs and bureaucracy was basically just part and part of a business decision. The, the principle was that they were movable. But the sticking point is whether or not the company actually intended to move them at the time it made the claim for capital allowances. The issue really for the company here as well is that because it was a small company with a relatively small management team, it didn't necessarily document management decisions maybe as fully as it would have benefited from doing so. So it relied quite a lot on the oral testimony uh, of a key director and employee. So that meant that at the time they made the claim for the year ended 30 September 2015, they did not have the intention to move the pods and therefore they could not qualify for capital allowances at that point. So in summary, the company won its appeal and can claim capital allowances in respect of the children's pods, but uh, its claim for capital allowances was denied in respect of the teacher pods. So what can we take away from this case? One thing for me, I think, is, is the point about intention. That's really hard for owner-managed businesses, isn't it? And also... Would they have even known enough about the rules to know that recording that intention was necessary? Because that's really deep in the legislation, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think that's, that's probably the key takeaway here. If you're looking to rely on something being movable or on the intention to move it, this case is a perfect illustration of how you can establish that 
uh, in terms of documentary evidence. So it's fantastic looking forward. Great mm-hmm. for that. Another interesting thing was the fact that intention could change over time, mm. which was really interesting. I hadn't really come across that technically before. So you could potentially have an addition some years later because they the intention was to move from it being a building or to a movable building. And obviously timing was a, a massive problem here because we're relying on the annual investment allowance. Yeah. You, you claim that for the year the expenditure is incurred. So yes, they can kind of put this right in the future by claiming capital allowances at a later date, but they always lose the benefit of that that time advantage of claiming it 100% in year one. And this case predates the introduction of structures and buildings allowances or SBAs in 2018. Would camping pods qualify for SBAs these days? In the SBAs legislation, uh, which came in, I think, around late 2018, there is a priority rule to the effect that if something qualifies for plant machinery capital allowances, you can't then claim SBAs. But the problem that if a case like this uh, is that if you're not sure if something qualifies for plant machinery allowances, where does that leave you with regard to a potential claim for SBAs? Uh, which is a, a really good point. And there's lots of exclusions. The The definitions are different. Yeah. So even though we've looked at structures and buildings in the pl- from, from plant and machinery perspective, there's exclusions for residential accommodation. Is, the, is this residential? Yeah, I, I'm sure the uh, the kids' pods may fall on the right side of the line. I don't think they would uh, necessarily count as enough accommodation, but it's, it's a, such a difficult question. Yeah, and that brings into focus again that question around, you know, certain things are very clearly accommodation than others, which are perhaps a more temporary nature that people are only intended to stay there maybe a week at a time. Is that residential? It's, it's an interesting question. I tried to research a little bit before, but didn't find a definitive answer, unfortunately. Yeah. And we see lots of cases around this in terms of, you know, the whole spectrum in, in other taxes. There's definitely comparisons across the whole tax code here. But Stephen, why did this case catch your eye? I think this one's particularly interesting. Uh, one, because it's a kind of detailed analysis of legislation that we probably remember from our studies and that also we may well come across at some point in our careers. And also the events here are very relatable. I'm sure we can all picture the camping pods. Uh, we can all kind of come to a conclusion in our own minds as to what we think. I think as well, this is another good illustration of how you can use tax cases to try and predict how HMRC will react to a claim. So if you, if you think about some of the lines of argument they used here, for example, like that, you know, the, the documentary evidence for a, a small business, it's quite good to be able just to prepare these things and be proactive. There's also an interesting point from the case around how they classified the expenditure in their accounts. They classified it as land and buildings rather than camping equipment uh, because that gave the more accurate depreciation policy. So the camping equipment, I think it was over five years land and buildings significantly more than that. And the judge did say that although accounts classification may be relevant, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a significant factor here. How can tax professionals and regulators use these human examples to get the message across? Yeah, that's a, a really good point and quite timely, I think, as well. Obviously, I've worked in tax content for a long time and I'm used to writing about uh, facts and figures. And it can be quite difficult sometimes to, to, to get the importance of changes across But I think when you have a bit of a a human element to it, people relate to it more. What's made me reflect on that a little bit lately, I think, is the whole post office thing. So obviously we had years and years of this information being out there in the public domain. We kind of all knew about it. But then it took the ITV drama into kind of see real people 
on TV going through it, for that to, that message to cut through, there probably are some lessons to be learned there about how we can convey things like that in the things that we uh, we publish. So, for example, you know, maybe using case studies to illustrate the impact that a rule change has on a person, uh, that uh, kind of that, that human touch. Well, cases like these make for a great discussion, but also highlight how uncertain the rules are for taxpayers. We've had a bit of a bit of certainty added in, in that companies can now plan their capital expenditure in the knowledge that full expensing will be permanent. Um, but what qualifies for full expensing is still less than certain. Richard, at Autumn Statement, the government said there'll be a technical consultation on full expensing. What's the scope of this? Well, the scope actually isn't that clear at this stage. This, this did come, as you say, on the back of the decision to make full expensing permanent. Originally, the, the Chancellor had said it will just be in for three years and then there will be a decision as to when to make it permanent from a you know a monetary finances point of view so it's great news that that's that that's now going to be permanently on the statute book only for companies i do always need to stress that unincorporated businesses aren't uh, entitled to full expensing and and just to be clear on what we mean by that it's a hundred percent relief essentially for qualifying planet machinery expenditure with no limit so the aia the annual investment allowance has been around for it's 16 years now that's always had a limit on it so this is essentially removing that limit but the scope of the the consultation all we've really had at the moment is what it's not going to include so the government have said that they're not going to change the scope of the type of expenditure that qualifies so that's going to stay broadly in line with a very small amount of statute and a big body of case law And also, there's no expected change to the rate, so it it shouldn't lead to a change in the size of the AIA or the writing down allowances. I think the intention behind it is simplification, condensing, reducing the legislation. It's interesting that the Capital Allowances Act was the first act that was the subject of the tax law rewrite, which is quite early on in my tax career. Um, But I, I have been around long enough to remember CAA 1990, which, of course, is now... 2001. So we might get a brand new Capital Antis Act, who knows? But yeah, I think that's the the basis is, is simplification and just making it easier and simpler to follow. Now, Richard, you, you did allude to the fact that you've got 100% write-offs in a, in a number of places. So companies can effectively achieve 100% write-off of qualifying expenditure under the full expensing rules or the 1 million annual investment allowance. The self-employed also have the 1 million annual investment allowance, but not full expensing. However, self-employed taxpayers using the cash basis also get full relief for most capital expenditure. Which brings us nicely on to our next topic, about changes to the cash basis from 6th of April. So Richard, first of all, what is the cash basis? I suppose the starting point is, is what it isn't. So before the cash basis arrived, which is again about 10 years ago now, um, all businesses would have to prepare their accounts from a tax perspective using generally accepted accounting principles, so accruals basis. 
So what the cash basis allowed businesses of a certain size to do was to do away with some of the adjustments that you would need to make in order to prepare those accounts. So things like accruals, prepayments, adjustments for stock, and also certain tax adjustments like, as we said, capital allowances. So we replace the capital allowances code with a, generally speaking, um, you know, 100% deduction for qualifying expenditure. So, so the idea was to make calculating profits simpler. So that, as, as I say, has been around for about 10 years now. And what's changing in April? So there are a few main changes. There was a consultation last year and there were various suggestions muted and quite surprisingly, at least I was quite surprised, um, all of them were adopted. The main change is the default option. So at the moment, the default for all unincorporated businesses is accruals basis, whereas from April 24, it will be the cash basis. So that's quite a significant change. That's true for all businesses except for a certain number that don't qualify for the cash basis. So, for example, LLPs, uh, partnerships that have corporate partners. Up until this point, there's been a limit on the turnover that any business could have in order to qualify for the cash basis. And at the moment, that's £150,000 per annum or 300000 if the owner qualifies for universal credit. So one of the key changes is that that limit is going to be totally removed. So that's that's a really big change. And so those businesses will need to think, you know, do we move to the default if they're currently under the accruals basis or do they stick with the accruals basis there are a couple of extra sweeteners that would help them perhaps make the switch and they are restrictions that were previously in place so the first one is around finance expenses at the moment if you have a uh, interest deduction that's limited to 500 pounds per annum if you're on the cash basis so that's that limit is going to be removed and then the second one is relates to losses. So at the moment, if you make a loss under the cash basis, you can't use that in certain circumstances to offset against other profit. Those restrictions are being removed as well. So really, in essence, the cash basis is being made more generous and more attractive. One thing that I notice, or I've seen quite a few comments, is that accountants don't really like the cash basis. We grew up learning accruals accounting. And I've seen a few examples out there on social media. So. Alice and Bob both set up a sweet shop. In their first week, they both spend £1,000 on buying sweets from the wholesaler and they both have sales of £500. So the net cash out for both of them is £500. But if we were looking at the accruals basis, Alice makes a profit of £200 and Bob only makes a profit of £100. And the difference that us accountants would like to make an adjustment for is closing stock. So Alice has closing stock of £700 at the end of the first week and Bob has closing stock of £600 at the end of the first week. Alice is obviously doing better. She's trading better and it's those end of period adjustments that give us the real business result. But Stephen, do you think this is an important simplification for the average sole trader? On balance, I think it is, yeah. So I'm kind of less impressed by the removal of the turnover restrictions or, or levels because I think for the great majority of sole traders they were they weren't really going to be near that kind of limit anyway so it wouldn't have been a, a factor and that kind of reminds me of the annual investment allowance where you know the headlines are always about it being increased but actually that only really benefits a very small percentage of businesses I think what is more impressive is you know those sweeteners that you talked about Richard to remove the cap on interest 
uh, and to allow uh, greater options for loss relief, particularly for opening years. And I think, you know, that really benefits the sole trader. Uh, They should feel that in their pocket. But at the same time, it just kind of removes those those horrible potential pitfalls. And I think, uh, yes, accountants are kind of unwilling to adopt the cash basis because they want to give the, an accurate position of the business. But I wonder if there's also a little bit of nervousness there as well uh, to go down a route where you are kind of ruling certain things out and there was a, a there's risk of errors or uh, lost opportunities. So I, I do think uh, those two in particular and on balance, and yeah, it is a, it is a very important simplification, uh, great in principle. Yeah, and I know I my parents were in business and I struggled for years to get them to, well, I never got them to understand accruals accounts. What mattered to them was the money that was in the bank and did they have enough money to pay their suppliers and they never liked credit. So they were very much focused on cash and the idea that they had to pay tax if a customer hadn't paid them, you know, they were like, well, why do I have to do that? So exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's always been a problem. And an even bigger problem is that when you're dealing with a small company, so maybe someone who's been a sole trader and has, has incorporated the last couple of years, for people to try and understand how a company is taxed, uh, what the fact it's just not their money anymore. Yeah. It's just one of the most challenging things in tax, I think. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know, maybe there's a point where very small companies will also be able to do something similar. Yeah, that's a good point. Is this an easy win for the government, do we think? Uh, yeah, I think so, because it's a, there's a simplification bonus for the, the sole trader. There should be no, if any, cost for the Treasury. So definitely on those terms, which begs the question, why don't we see more of these? And I think there's maybe a wider concern of where we stand with things like this uh, now that the uh, the OTS, the Office of Tax Simplification, has gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, Richard, you alluded to this being 10 years old. I th- I'm pretty sure it started with a recommendation from the OTS. So I do wonder if, if we've, having lost the OTS, does that mean we've lost the pipeline for these kind of ideas to come through? But at the same time, when the OTS was abolished, I believe the government said that the intention was to embed simplification in decision making. So the other side of the coin is that, is this a good example of of that in action? Because uh, it does go much further than the OTS would have first suggested, much further than we all anticipated. So perhaps it is an example of that. If the government uh, is committed to something, it can move quite quickly on it. And Richard, you alluded to the fact that it's a key time for businesses that are affected to think about, you know, should I stick with the accruals basis or should I adopt the cash basis? What factors might influence that decision? For those businesses that are currently using the cash basis, it's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, it's become more attractive. I think the key question is if you're currently operating on an accruals basis, should you switch to the cash basis, particularly given that there's no turnover limit now? So even businesses above that 150 grand turnover could now face this decision. And in fact, if they don't make an active decision, they'll end up on the cash basis anyway. So they do really actually need to think about it. I think there's there's two things to consider here. The first one is the transitional year. So if you move from one basis of accounting to another one, you'll need to make some accounting adjustments to get you from the old basis to the new basis. And that will inevitably have a cash flow impact. It could be positive, it could be negative. Businesses either will do that themselves or they'll uh, you know, employ an accountant to help them work that out and that will help them to come to a decision. 
obviously they can make that on a year by year basis. So maybe they don't do it in 2024, maybe they do it in 25 or or a subsequent year. But then the other things to consider are, yes, cash basis is simpler, but if you're a business of a reasonable size, then you're probably already tracking debtors. You're probably already making provisions. You're probably already tracking your stock and your accruals. If you're not, probably your risk management isn't up to scratch. So it's probably not a huge amount of extra cost and admin to convert that into a set of compliant accounts. So I would question the extent to which this is actually going to reduce costs. One of the things I think that, that HMRC have alluded to is the fact that a business on a cash basis gets them slightly closer to the quarterly accounts or the quarter reporting that's required under making tax digital, which is true. Uh, but if you're a business that has an accounting year end that doesn't match the tax year, then you're still going to have to work out two sets of accounts for each tax year. And so although that gets you one step closer, it doesn't entirely get you in t- in, you know, totally in line with what's required for MTD. We're coming to the end of this episode, but to summarise, the cash base is going to be welcome news for sole traders and small businesses even if accountants are not so keen. Many thanks to Richard and Stephen for your contributions. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. And thanks for listening. If you've missed anything, we've included some links for further reading in the show notes. And if you've found it useful, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can rate and share the podcast too. We'll be back next month with the next tax track. In the meantime, why not check out the sister podcast from ICAW? Insights provides analysis across the world of business, finance and accountancy, while our In Focus series offers more of a deep dive into various topics. Remember that ICAW members can join the faculty for no additional cost. Faculty members receive our monthly tax line bulletin. In addition, anyone can subscribe to receive our weekly tax wire bulletin containing the latest tax news from ICAW. Thanks for listening.